Hey everybody, welcome to the Overrun. Uh, I'm Dan Schwester, and I am flying solo today on the Overrun. Um, so bear with me. Um, I don't have the gang behind me to kind of help me out with this. So um, gonna do the best I can by myself. It's lonely. I'm just kidding. Uh, so reason why uh, we're on is this is a special extra episode. Uh, we're doing a recap of a very interesting uh, conference that uh, we attended last Thursday night uh, up in Newark, New Jersey at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center. Uh, it was sponsored by the uh, New Jersey EMS Fellowship and the MD1 program. Uh, which is going to be two things you're probably going to hear a lot more of in the near future, uh, headed up by uh, Dr. Mark Merlin. Uh, he tweets at Care Anywhere. Um, he is a pretty formidable figure in our, uh, in, in our uh, world over here, um, really progressive medical director, uh, doing some really interesting stuff with pre-hospital medicine uh, in the state of New Jersey. And um, every year uh, he has been put for the last few years, he's been putting on a uh, dinner conference during EMS week where he brings in uh, uh, people in the emergency medicine, critical care world, and uh, just has a real good discussion and opens it up to all pre-hospital providers. So uh, this year was no, uh, this year was the third annual. Uh, it was a really interesting conference. Uh, the overrun was up there. We were uh, live tweeting. We were doing some Facebook live and some Instagram. Uh, if you were taking a look at that and uh, from, uh, from the numbers, a uh, few of you, uh, more than a few were. Uh, it was some really, really interesting stuff, some groundbreaking stuff. Uh, we'll get more into Dr. Merlin and some of the things that he's doing in the uh, show, but uh, later in the show. Uh, but it's some really groundbreaking stuff, uh, definitely bringing um, pre-hospital care to another level uh, around here. Uh, and we'll talk more about the MD1 program when um, we'll have him on again um, in the uh, near future. So, uh, again, like this program was set up as a really interesting format. Um, it was uh, we had uh, 10 minute to 15 minute presentations by. Uh, fellowship training EMS physicians, uh, medical directors, things, uh, people of that nature. And they hit on two big topics that they felt in the last year that were really critically important. And uh, we'll try to give you a recap of it. Um, like I said, check back to our Facebook Live and some of the other, um, our social media outlets. And uh, you can definitely uh, see some of uh what we're talking about but we'll go over each one uh each presenter and uh try to kind of hit some of the the, the highlights <clears throat> so the first uh the first person up was uh dr uh zaf kasim who is a uh who tweets at e em emed doc e-m-e-d-d-o-c uh he uh, is a upenn uh emergency medicine critical care trauma resuscitationist uh also trained at shock trauma and he's on faculty there. Uh, he brought up two uh, interesting um, studies uh, for pre-hospital blood product use. So this looked at plasma uh, being used in pre-hospital instead of crystalloid. And uh, we'll put those. Uh, we'll put the the uh, trials or the uh, the literature up in the show notes. We'll put links up to it. Um, what they found that these uh, two new studies uh, showed that. Patients who got blood products in trauma uh, did a lot better 
when you looked at uh, mortality after 30 days than people that didn't. Um, in the PAMFOR trial, we talked about air transport. Uh, you saw like a 10% decrease in uh, mortality. Um, and in the ground transport trial, there was a 5% drop. Um, we can look at, you know, some of the things and, you know, we can discuss some of the trials later. Maybe we'll have Dr. Kasim come on to talk about these. Uh, but um, the bottom line, folks, is crystalloid is not good for your trauma patients. If you have somebody with, you know, penetrating trauma or non-compressible hemorrhage and they are bleeding, um, giving them crystalloid, even lactated ringers, things like that is not good for them. Um, the consensus seems to be and the evidence is starting to build up that, you know, the more fluid we give them, the worse they do. So that's pretty interesting, especially in a world where we've been trained with, you know, the NREMT, you know, uh, practical exam where two large bore IVs, two liters lactated ringers run wide open to maintain blood pressure. And now we're finding out that's completely different, <clears throat> that running, um, running that dilutes cl uh, clotting factors, dilutes the ability of the body to carry oxygen, uh, increases acidosis. Uh, just a bad cocktail for your patients. Um, you may get a transient rise in blood pressure. They may look somewhat a little bit better with you. But one of the things that our training as pre-hospital clinicians, I think, has really not come around to is that we really don't see these patients three, four days later. And that's a problem. These are the people that get sick. These are the people that have multi-organ dysfunction. And, you know, they look good for us. They don't look good down the road. So what's the takeaway? The takeaway is give as little blood, uh, little crystalloid as possible. Um, give enough to absolutely only what you need to maintain perfusion to the point of keeping that person alive. If their blood pressure and the discussion afterwards was really interesting because they talked about how low is a blood pressure? What's a tolerably low blood pressure? And it's a lot lower than what we would think it is. Um, they were talking about numbers of 80, 70. Um, where don't give crystalloid. And in the uh, situations where you have to give crystalloid, give tiny boluses. Um, we're talking 250 mLs, you know, not a big bolus. It's, it's not even a big, it's not a big bolus for us. We're used to 500s. We're used to hanging liter bags. And the consensus is that, that that's not a good thing. So this may be something we need to, you know, bring to your medical directors and discuss with them and see what the thought process are. We're going to link to this in the show notes. It may just give you a better idea. Uh, but a really, really interesting couple of papers that came out of uh, the EMS Fellowship Conference. Uh, next up, we had Dr. Hinfee, Patrick Hinfee, uh, from the who's a residency program director at North Beth Israel, uh, also a fellowship trained in EMS, and uh, talked about eCPR. Uh, this is a new thing, and if you're following this stuff on Twitter or you know you're listening to other podcasts, although why would you? No, I'm just kidding. Um, that this is something that's coming and you know it's very fashionable i mean we do we've done it too we talk you know the everybody's seen the internet picture of uh you know um the paris samu ecmo team doing uh putting somebody on pump in a subway station or a metro stop in uh, paris or the louvre and those things do happen and, you know, people are starting to think, well, we can do it. It's easy. Um, you know, the, the takeaway was, you know, it's a team effort. There's a lot of things that have to get done. 
Um, and there are specific inclusion and exclusion criteria. This isn't a panacea for everybody. Um, this is for certain people that are going to respond to this. Um, it's not for every cardiac arrest, but in certain cardiac arrests where there's the ability to take this person to a specialized center to make, um, you know, to do invasive PCI and, and get the clot out, um, this may be something for them, but it's not going to be for everybody. It's very resource intensive. It's very labor intensive. And, you know, if you listen to the show, you know, I'm, I'm very pro paramedic. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm one of these people that think we can do a lot of different things. We can do a lot more than we're currently doing. This is another world. Um, you know, ECMO is going to be one of those things that this is going to be in the emergency or EMS physicians arsenal. And, you know, if you don't have a robust program like that, where your physicians do come out in the field and have the ability with the with uh, the tools to actually make this happen, I really don't think you know. I don't think this is something that we're going to be seeing on us on a regular medic unit or an advanced paramedic unit. It's there's uh, there's too many moving parts, um, but the future is coming. Um, you know, look, 40, 40 years ago we talked. You know the idea of putting defibrillators on an ambulance with two technicians was ridiculous. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying that right now, this is very, very something that is labor intensive. It's going to take a lot of moving parts. And uh, right now it's probably in the realm of an EMS physician. If you're lucky enough to have an EMS physician program, physician response program, uh, like we do, uh, this may be something for you. Um, it, again, you know, this is something that we're going to do a lot more studying on. I think it's going to be looked at from a lot more angles. It definitely has the ability to save lives. Um, but it's not something that needs to be, that should be taken on lightly. Uh, one of the other interesting things we talked about was, um, Dr. Amandique Tagore, uh, who is a, uh, the program director of the EMS and Disaster Medicine Fellowship. Uh, he's also uh, one of the MD1 program um, board of directors. Uh, fantastic emergency physician, um, tactical physician, flight physician. He talked about a couple papers that was really interesting. Talked about um, the idea of using um, nebulized TXA uh, for uh, you know like peritonsillar bleeding, things like that, and that it did work. It had some good, you know, good results. Um, so this may be something that we're going to see in the pre-hospital world. You know, these post-op people who have some, you know, bleeding or, um, you know, this could be something that's, that's an option. Um, we'll link to the paper in the show notes. He also talked about, there was a uh, paper on, um, giving calcium, a calcium channel blocker intranasally to stop, uh, Superventricular tachycardias or SVTs. They were using etropamil. I'm sorry. Um, And uh, it's given intranasal only. It's rapid onset. uh, And they had fairly good success with it. Uh, to convert SCT to sinus rhythm. Uh, what's the goal of this is basically they want to look at patients getting this or patients who are predisposed to this, being able to give this to themselves before arriving at the ED and possibly terminating that rhythm, um, you know, with a lot of things. What's the downsides? Uh, you know, SVT is such a, it's, it's a very odd rhythm. I mean, you know, there's only, 
you know, there was a story a couple weeks ago that got into the internet where um, we had a an ambulance that went over a bump and converted somebody in SVT. Um, you know, anecdotally, uh, have I seen people convert from having an IV start? Yes. Have I uh, seen people convert from being moved into an ambulance? Yeah. So we don't really know the mechanism of how it terminates. Uh, we do know that this is a very, this is a drug that seems to be fairly easily given, can be given by a, uh, you know, self-administered by a patient or by a family member and can terminate the rhythm before the patient becomes more and more unstable. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, really interesting paper. And, uh, we're going to definitely, uh, link to it in the show notes. Uh, one of the interesting things that, you know, Dr. Merlin's, uh, MD one program, the EMS fellowship can do is bring, um, bring people from other areas of medicine to come in and talk. And, you know, this is something that we don't get an opportunity in EMS. Uh, Diane Colello, Dr. Colello's, uh, was, uh, she's the executive director of, um, the New Jersey Poison Information Education System. She's also an associate professor in emergency medicine at Rutgers. And, uh, she talked about a couple things that were really interesting. Um, with marijuana legalization coming into its own uh, nationwide, um, there's multiple states where it's been legalized. There's multiple states where its possessions decriminal or use is decriminalized, and there's more states that are going to be adopting this. Whatever your political outlooks or whatever your feelings on this is, um, just realize that we're going to start seeing some acute illnesses uh, with cannabis use. Um, she, the big takeaways again was that, uh, the marijuana that's out there, the cannabis, cannabis that's being used, uh, is a higher concentration and that is causing problems, um, especially in the edibles. Um, you know, these things are, can have a pretty high concentration. You can have a high, pretty high serum concentration of THC, and this can cause a lot of side effects, um, a lot more issues than we've had in the past. <clears throat> and that's just something that we need to um, be aware of when we start seeing these patients with altered mental status or, you know, acute intoxication events. Um, this is something that's out there. This is something that's going to be coming as, you know, this, this industry or whatever starts becoming a, a legitimate industry. Um, the quality, the concentrations are going to get, you know, are there, um, you know, we need to be aware of this. Um, you know, you have people who, you know, you, you're only supposed to take two gummy bears. You take seven, um, and they're tripping. They're, they're, they're floridly off. Um, these are things that are out there. Uh, some of the other things that we're starting to see is, uh, hyperemesis, uh, with some, uh, cannabis users, um, you know, intractable vomiting, things like that. Um, these are people that you might end up having to treat on an ALS side, um, just to kind of maintain things. So, a uh, very informative, uh, there's, like I said, there was some Facebook live we talked about. Um, and the other, the other point that she brought up was really interesting was, um, people misusing loperamide. Uh, if you're not up on your generics, loperamide is the medication that you find in trade names such as Imodium. Uh, it's an anti-diarrheal, um, but it does have opioid-like effects at higher concentrations. Um, you know, the mu, recept the mu opioid receptors, uh, this is something that loperamide will, uh, will work on, and you can have... Um, 
opioid effects from people misusing loperamide. At high doses, you get those effects. You get a high, and it lessens withdrawal. Um, the downside, you can start seeing some dysrhythmias, uh, CNS issues. Um, this is something that we need to be aware of, especially as people try, you know, we have people out there that are trying to, uh, you know, maybe trying to kick, you know, opioid misuse and, uh, especially people who maybe are misusing, but we don't know they're misusing and they're trying to fix this before anybody finds out. Um, you know, using loperamide, you can see somebody with cardiac dysrhythmias. Um, it's something to take a look of and notice. Um, you know, it, it, this is something that's out there um, and something that we don't really expect as uh, EMS clinicians. So it was really, really informative. And uh, there was a little bit of a discussion afterwards when they talked about, um, you know, what's the right naloxone dose? Um, if you talked, uh, you know, we've been on the show, we've talked about this a lot. Uh, we're not fans of naloxone. Uh, we're fans of airway and ventilatory management of opioid overdoses and just giving a tiny bit of, um, you know, naloxone to get them from respiratory rate of four to like 12. <clears throat> and Dr. Colello ten, tended to agree with that. Um, intranasally, uh, she recommended basically two milligrams, one dose and maintain ventilations and airway management um, for them. You know, for the ALS providers, if you're giving this, give it small doses at a time, 0.4 uh, at a clip, and the goal should always be with nar with naloxone. We just want them breathing. Uh, we don't want to precipitate withdrawal. We don't want an agitated person. We, you know, these are these are potential problems. Um, you know, I, I think that's really sound, and that's what we took from it. So um, that's what we try to. That's that's what uh, my place tries to do. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to help the person. We don't really want to precipitate a withdrawal or any kind of issues with that. Um, the next up was Dr. Hobine, Dr. Janae Hobine. She's a EMS and disaster medicine fellow at NBI. Um, she's also a medical director for one of the largest um, EMS programs in the state. Um, and she talked about a couple interesting things. Um, the one thing was Bakuto criteria. Um, Bakuto criteria, if you haven't heard about this, this is um, where you look at somebody in cardiac arrest. Uh, it's a way of uh, determining potential for survival. Uh, your Bakuto, pro it looks at age, it looks at whether the um, cardiac arrest was witnessed and whether there was a shockable rhythm initially. Um, if your age was, you're considered positive. If your age was equal to or greater than 73 years old, if there was an unwitnessed arrest and if there was a non, non shockable rhythm, um, basically if you're Bakuto positive, you have a 0.5% chance. That's 0.5 chance of a favorable neurologic outcome, um, from cardiac arrest resuscitation. Um, and this is pretty reliable. Again, we'll link to the paper in the notes. There's going to be a lot of links on this uh, episode. So, um, you know, I can't, you know, it would be a four-hour episode. So I'm just going to direct you to the stuff. Um, one of the things that Bakuto does is really interesting, and it's like Opal's. Um, they did something similar up in Canada. And uh, this, is, this is identifying people when we get on scene who are unlikely to benefit from resuscitation. Uh, and this is an interesting thing that I've noticed in um, the conference world or talking to some of these, listening to physicians talk that 
not everybody, maybe not everyone needs resuscitate, should be resuscitated. Now, obviously your protocols, obviously your medical directors, you know, what your agency uh, dictates is supreme and, you know, don't take this as any other way. Um, but use this as a way maybe to discuss with people, you know, who should we be resuscitating? Um, cardiac arrest for most of the, you know, for most of the population, it's a pre-terminal event. Um, we do have the ability to intervene and, and to have a positive outcome in some instances. Um, the goal, I think, of emergency and pre-hospital care in the near future is going to be identify those people. Who's going to benefit from the most and who is not going to see a benefit? Um, you know, we can say, yeah, you know, you give it the college try, but it is a, it is kind of a intrusive event. It's, it's an uncomfortable event for people. Um, it is a stressor. You know, there's a lot of factors that we haven't looked at of doing resuscitation. And, um, is this something that we need to be doing? I, I'm not sure yet. Um, you know, I think cardiac arrest management, we should be managing the people that we can get a good neurologic outcome. For me, it's not enough to just get ROSC. ROSC is, you know, ROSC is okay. You know, hey, great, we got pulses back. Okay, so we brought them to the hospital and then they never wake up or they're, or worse, they're in a vegetative state or they, they need skilled nursing care for the rest of their life. Is that a win for us? And that's why I think in EMS where we have to start thinking about like, is that a win? Should that be considered a win? Um, I like, I think my personal feelings, I think neurological outcome matters. Uh, I think people surviving and being able to walk out of the hospital with meaningful time so that they can spend with their family. Um, you know, I think the evidence does back it up. Um, you know, there's been a Canadian study that the Bakuto criteria, I think these are, these are pretty much showing us, Hey, look, you know, not everybody needs a full blown resuscitation. Um, as programs, as, you know, as departments, as agencies out there, I think we all need to discuss this and start thinking about what, what we want our programs to do. What does EMS want to do for people? And, um, you know, I think that's the big takeaway. The other thing, um, that Dr. Hoban talked about that, uh, I thought was really good was, you know, she brought back up the paramedic two trial. Uh, if you've been listening to the show, you know, we did an episode on this and talked about it. And, uh, basically it talks about epi and cardiac arrest. Um, the, you know, the too late didn't read part of this for everybody is we get more ROSC with epi. We don't get good neurologic outcome. So what's the answer? We're not sure yet. Um, I tend to think that we don't know how to use epi effectively. I think we're get my, you know, I think maybe we give way too much. I mean, if we start a heart back up, but we don't get a brain back, I don't think we're doing any good for patients. And I think there's a fair amount of people that would agree with that. What's the answer? There's a lot of people that are talking about this. There's a lot of research that's going to be coming on in the next few years about this. Um, but paramedic two was one of the first big studies that actually reinforced um, that more epi does lead to more ROSC, but it does not lead to the important thing, which is neurologic survival. We put in all this work and we do a ton of work to try to save these people. We want them to have a meaningful life when they come out the other side. Um, what that is, is obviously medical ethicists. We're going to debate that for a lot, but you know, 
are we using too much epi? I don't, you know, I think that might be something. There's some people out there that talk, you know, um, Scott Weingart on the MCRIP podcast would talk about he thinks that we give too much epi and should titrate it to systolic BP. Um, there are people that are saying we should eschew the the bolus methodology of epi, you know, giving epi in cardiac arrest and maybe go to a drip. Uh, there's also people that say, you know, we should have arterial lines placed in cardiac arrest resuscitation to make sure we're getting exactly the right information we need. I think all of them are sound. I don't, I think they make sense. Uh, I don't think that there's a ton of science behind this. And, uh, you know, the 2020 AHA and, uh, ILCOR guidelines are going to come out. So it's going to be really interesting to see what they're going to say about, um, you know, things. I think there's going to be some changes. Um, what they are, it's up pretty much up to anybody's suggestion. So, um, you know, definitely, you know, if you want, if you have an idea or you're, there's something your area is doing that makes a lot of sense, you know, put it, a, put it in the comments and we can talk about it. Uh, but I think those are, those are interesting game changers. <clears throat> um, Next, then we had uh, Jocelyn Joseph, um, who uh, Dr. Joseph, again, another EMS and disaster medical fellow, uh, EM EM physician, um, you know, all these fellows. uh, We'll get more into that in a little bit, but they're all very highly trained in this stuff. They do tactical medicine. They do flight medicine in this uh, fellowship. It's really, really, uh, it's really cool, actually. but uh, she did uh, talked about uh, the Las Vegas shooting and talked about some of the things that we can take away from the after action report. Um, things that, um, you know, having a your your hospitals should have a point of contact uh, with the police in the emergency department. Um, having a public information officer and a social media person to be able to send out information um, is critical to managing a good incident. Uh, she talked about, you know, that the, the other takeaways were, you know, that you have to train with your emergency departments for these types of disasters. Uh, if you're not drilling, if you're not having tabletops, uh, you're going to have a lot of confusion when this comes in. And that can lead to poor, worse outcomes. Um, she talked about um, the recommendation that everybody involved in the potential of one of these events uh, get up on um the training and, and get their ICS and NIMS training. Uh, this is given through FEMA. Uh, it's all free. Anybody can take it. Um, we're going to link to it, but you know, um, I 700, I 100 and the uh, NIMS national incident management system. Uh, it's a language for everybody to be able to talk at these major incidents. Cause you know, the fire guys come in, the cops come in, the SWAT guys come in, the communications people come in, the medics come in, EMS comes in, um, other agencies come in, and this is a way for everybody to have a unified way of talking to each other. The other thing that uh, she said that the suggestion came out of, which makes a lot of sense, was um, having throw kits for MCIs. And these are not so much for clinicians, but this is a, this was an interesting idea. Having throw kits that you can... Th- Give to civilians that have the ability, have basic first aid supplies, gloves, tourniquets, tape, uh, gauze pads, things like that, uh, pressure dressings, and the ability for them to stop bleeding in a, in a place where you may not be able to get to them right away. Uh, this is something that's pretty easy to do. Um, there's a lot of commercial kits now that are out there. 
uh, really uh, not a bad idea if you think about it. Giving people, you know, these immediate responders the ability to save lives. Um, you know, not everybody, you know, does the everyday carry thing. Very few people do, especially civilians. Um, and most of the time, even when people do, they have enough for maybe themselves or something like this uh, for some like for a situation like this. This may be a good idea. You know, have a bag full of stuff, these little bags, and you can just throw them, you know, throw them into the crowd or throw them to people and have them do bleeding control until we can get more, you know, more resources there. So something that was really interesting Um you know, we talked about that. Uh, she also talked about maternal out-of-hospital cardiac arrest and uh, using um, perimortem C-sections or resuscitative hysterotomies, uh, whatever you want, whatever you discuss. Uh, again, this is not a paramedic scope of practice. This is more of a for a physician or emergency medicine standpoint. Um, <clears throat> the takeaway from this is that if this is going to happen, it's got to be done fast. Um, if you have a patient in, you know, a, a cardiac arrest patient and they, you suspect they're pregnant, um, you need to consider moving to the hospital and the ho and a hospital that's prepared and ready to do this. The goal is within five minutes, um, in the study that she talked about that, you know, three of them were done and it was 55 minutes, 90 minutes and 120 minutes. And that's that's really too long for viability for either the mother or the, the child. So, um, you know, this again, this is something that this is a very, very advanced thing. Um, and this was a this was actually a question at the conference and not in a bad way. This was um, one of the participants just asked the question, like, is this something that, a, you know, that an EMS unit or a paramedic unit can do? Uh, and I thought the answer was great. Um, the answer was no. Uh, and rightfully so. I mean, the resources we have, the things we have as an ability to, um, to, to manage this, um, is very limited. Um, it's something that really needs to remain in the physician scope. And, um, you know, we have to, you know, this is a, this is going to be a thing with me as, you know, I know, you know, those of you that listen to me and if you work with me, I'm all in favor of pushing paramedicine as far as we can go. But I do think there's hard stops. I think there's places where we probably shouldn't tread, uh, at least until there's resources and education to back it up. And this is definitely one of these things. I would not be comfortable doing this. I don't want to do it. Uh, and I don't think this is a paramedic thing. Um, but it does say if you're it does give you the option. You know, it's something to think about if you're close to a hospital, if you're, you know, less than five or 10 minutes out and you have a patient in cardiac arrest and they're pregnant um, waiting on scene might or trying to stabilize on scene may not do good for either mother or child. Uh, this is something that you need to consider. Um, interesting, though. And then uh, what else? Uh, we had uh, one of the interesting things was we had Dr. David Ben Eli uh, come in and talk about um, in-flight medical emergencies. This was cool because you know I take trips, I go to you know I go places, um, you know I go to Europe, I fly on planes, you know pretty frequently, and I always wondered you know you always kind of have that dread of is there somebody who's a medical practitioner on the plane? What does it entail? What do we do with it? How do we you know how do you respond to it? what's in the medical kit? You know, we know there's a medical kit somewhere and what's on it. So he went through that. He talked about it. 
Um, he talked about some, uh, you know, what some of the ideas uh, that they, you know, the med kids vary from airline to airline. Um, that there are, uh, he does talk about there were, uh, there are ground support things, almost like a medical control. You can call in and do that. Um, and there was, uh, interesting things to the, um, the interesting thing they talk about is the big thing is, you know, do you divert the flight? You know, someone has a medical emergency on board, uh, and do you go to, you know, do you fly to the nearest airport and land so that person can get medical attention? And my takeaway from this was what Dr. Benny Lai was saying is that of those people that get diverted, uh, that not many of them actually get admitted to the hospital. Uh, of the people who get diverted, maybe a third of them end up going into the hospital and a, and a smaller percentage actually end up getting admitted. Uh, the What's the you know, okay, so what's the big deal? The big deal is that this costs a lot of money, uh, you know, a lot of money to turn a plane around. A lot of, uh, if the plane has to divert, um, they frequently have to dump fuel because planes are heavy enough to take off, but they're too heavy to land. Um, and they calculate that, you know, the plane's going to land with only so much fuel and that weighs so much and that's the landing gear are going to be able to handle that. Um, stuff I didn't know. And I thought that was really, really interesting. Uh, the other part was, you know, learning for me was like really how limited the onboard, uh, medical kit is. Uh, it doesn't give you a ton of stuff to work with and it doesn't give you a ton of things to be able to do. Um, you know, your prolonged resuscitations, you're going to run out of stuff. You're just not going to have the ability. Uh, so that was, that was kind of sobering for me. Um, some of the things they talked about, the other things he talked about when you do volunteer, um, you know, don't exceed your scope of practice. Uh, and I can't stress that enough. If you're, if you're an EMT and you want to help, that's fantastic. But remember you're an EMT, uh, paramedics, same thing. You're not a doctor in the air. This is an international waters type things. This is stick to your scope of practice and you won't get yourself into a position that you don't want to be into. Um, you know, some of the lead, touched on some of the legal and ethical considerations, you know, uh, good Samaritan rules. Um, but those good Samaritan rules only apply if you're not being compensated. Uh, if you take an upgrade, if you take a free ticket, uh, if you accept, uh, pretty much anything potentially as a gratuity or as a, um, you know, a compensation thing, it can put you into a situation where good Samaritan wouldn't apply. Just be careful. Um, I think he said, you know, the, the thing I took from it was be very cautious. Um, you know, I, people are happy for what you're doing. Um, you know, they're grateful for your help. Uh, but you know, keep, keep that in the back of your mind. The other thing he talked about too, is, uh, if you're, if you've been drinking, if you're under the influence, uh, you know, if you're on the plane, you know, don't just be careful. Uh, you know, common sense applies, you know, it's, it goes without saying, um, you know, be a professional. Uh, and if you had a couple drinks on that flight over to Europe, then, you know, maybe you're not the guy to make the decisions. He also talked about a, uh, interesting, um, app called air RX, uh, that will, uh, be a guide for people. It's on Android and iOS. Uh, so we'll take, we'll put that out and we'll, we'll link up, we'll link up to that too. Um, 
Dr. Green, Dr. Brett Greenfield, who's another medical director uh, of uh, flight program and uh, paramedic program uh, in New Jersey. Um, really uh, smart guy talked about um, EMS wellness, which is I thought which I thought was great because it was something that we don't talk about a lot. Um, you know, on the show, you know, we're big on mental health and we talk about things like that and we've shared our stories. Uh, I thought it was refreshing. I really want to thank Dr. Greenfield for coming on and talking about those issues. Uh, we know EMS wellness is a problem. We know that we are more likely to have uh, post-traumatic stress. We're most likely to, more likely to be uh, potentials for suicide as opposed to the general population. And we need to fix that. So I thought that was a real eye-opener and something that we really needed to discuss. Uh Dr. Sunio Yamuchi, this was a really interesting thing. He talked about um, advanced airway interventions for pediatric cardiac arrest. And the takeaway from it was basically, you know, if you can bag this patient, that's okay. BLS me measures are good. Um, people with advanced, uh, peds who had advanced airway interventions tended not to do as well. Why? Not really sure. We have to deep dive more into the paper, uh, but... You know, maybe it's just the interruption of compressions, all the same things we do in, you know, uh, in unfamiliarity with pediatric airways, you know, stuff we've all talked about. So um, this is one of those things that, you know, was was interesting. It was something that we needed to, uh, you know, we need to kind of have an ego, you know, check our egos when we have these calls to really be able to, um, you know, to to do the right thing for the patients. Um that was, you know, I thought that was a great takeaway. And, uh, again, people who, you know, people who, uh, definitely, um, you know, who have trouble, you know, if you're having trouble, don't intubate, don't do repeated attempts. You know, we've, we've been over this <clears throat> and then, uh, let's see what else, who else, uh, uh, Daniel Goltz, uh, Dr. Goltz was, uh, another disaster, EMS disaster disaster medicine fellow at NBI, um, talked about, um, dispatcher assisted CPR and using ultrasound during CPR to actually, uh, see how well we're doing and, um, you know, uh, whether we can help with, um, you know, whether we can help with, uh, you know, our resuscitation to make a better focus by using ultrasound. Um, so, you know, it, it, the big thing again was, you know, it did take away, it, you know, there was, uh, it had the biggest impact on compression rates. Um, one of the big takeaways that CPR quality was poor among healthcare providers didn't do well. Um, and you know, these things didn't translate right now to a higher survival to discharge. Dr. Navin Arya Prakai, uh, who's the associate program director of the fellowship, talked about heads up CPR. And this was kind of interesting. Um, it did show some interesting results, um, but it's not necessarily something that we're ready yet for the field. Uh, when they're talking about heads up, this is uh, putting people in an inclined position. Uh, the idea is uh, increasing venous return, uh, decreasing intracranial pressure. Um, there was a, it was a very interesting uh, study, and it may have some applications in the near future. 
uh, for right now, the big, the big takeaway for us was to, you know, optimize your cardiac arrest components at work, do the things that matter, you know, good compressions, good rates. We're, we're continually showing that we really don't do CPR well. And that's something that I think we need to recognize and accept in the EMS world. We really should be excellent at CPR. There's really no reason for us not to be, and we can't, we shouldn't depend on the Lucas or mechanicals or things like that. Um, you know, it just was really, you know, this is something that we need to master and we need to work on mastering it. And I don't think we do it enough. I don't think going to a class every two years is probably enough for us to be good at it. Um, where all this other stuff is going to come in, I think it's going to build off us being excellent providers of CPR. Um, that's the really important thing. Um, and then, uh, we finished up, uh, with Dr. Matthew Harris, uh, who's a, not only an emergency medicine physician, but he's boarded in pediatric emergency medicine and EMS, um, talking about, uh, pre pediatric pre-hospital, uh, hemorrhage control. Uh, the big takeaways were that, um, you know, uh, that use of tourniquets was, is good. Uh, you can use tourniquets with, uh, in pediatrics, you don't need special sizes. Uh, the commercial ones do tend to work very well. Uh, if you go to the manufacturer sites, they will show you, uh, there was also a study, uh, that was in the journal of special operations medicine about pediatric tourniquet use in, in, uh, com in the combat zones over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there was fairly good results. Uh, the big thing that Dr. Harris talked about was how pediatric patients do better, um, in trauma when they're taken to a pediatric specialized trauma facility, as opposed to, uh, just being brought to a regular, you know, to a trauma center that focuses more on adults. Um, the in-hospital mortality was 2.3% for adults, and it was 0.6% for the patients who were brought to a pediatric trauma facility that, that does pediatric trauma. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, you know, uh, 40, he also pointed out 47% of kids with a trauma activation go to surgery. Um, and talked about, uh, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, remember that massive transfusion protocols are triggered tr typically when 50% of your total blood volume is lost. Remembering kids, they don't have as much as we do, so less blood loss is going to cause more proportional damage. Um, this may be somebody, so if you have a choice of taking somebody to, a, a kid to a standardized trauma center or a pediatric trauma center, that may be a decision that you need to bring up to your agencies or talk to your medical directors about that. That might be feasible for you. Uh, so it's good things. Um, this was a great program. Uh, I thought it was fantastic for EMS clinicians um, to get exposed to fellowship level um, program, you know, fellowship level uh, education on a uh, informal basis. Um, Dr. Merlin's program is probably one of the biggest in, um, in the East coast, at least probably the United States. Uh, and the other part of it is the MD one program, which is actually putting these fellowship trained EMS physicians out on the road in response vehicles with expanded capabilities. Uh, a lot like if you've talked to London, if you've seen London air ambulance, uh, their HEMS teams, where it's a doctor coming out in the field doing specialized stuff. Um, they have all 
the capabilities they have, uh, surgical capabilities. They have the ability to carry whole blood, which was a huge takeaway from this. If you took one thing away from this program, from this program tonight, it was whole blood. Um, blood is what we should be giving trauma patients. We shouldn't be giving them crystalloid. It's not good for them and it hurts them down the line. Um, Dr. Merlin's program, uh, is very unique. It's probably one, it's one of the few in in the U S right now on this model. And it's a statewide program. They will come out all over. They will go to other States. Uh, they will respond in. So for the, you know, your prolonged entrapments, uh, your mass casualty incidents, things like that. Um, they're really, they are a fantastic resource. Um, you know, we've worked with them, uh, on more than a few occasions in the field, um, it is a great force multiplier. It's a great confidence builder to have a physician there to have the ability to do things like ultrasound, to be able to give blood, to be able to do uh, surgical procedures in the field that need to get done right now. Um, you, you may have seen it publicized on the Dr. Oz show. Um, there's going to be more things that are becoming out about this. Uh, you can see more of this at www.md1program.com uh, and going to uh, the EMS Fellowship site. It's uh, emsfellowship.com. And again, we'll pull all these links up. Uh, this is just a fantastic program. Um, and it's really, really groundbreaking, especially for EMS in the United States. Um you know, again, in, in England and, you know, Europe, and you see some of these places, a physician, you know, response mode, you know, a physician response model is there. Um, it's one of the times, you know, it's one of the few agencies around that we actually have the ability to have these doctors in the field and doing very high advanced skills. So, um, it's very cool. Get a chance to look at it. Um, definitely look at it. Uh, if you get to see Dr. Merlin uh, out of plays or you get to hear him speak, uh, he's definitely one of the thought leaders in emergency and pre-hospital medicine. Uh, he is a former paramedic. Um, his program um, has taken physicians who a lot of them are former paramedics. They have a, a high a high respect for what we do as paramedics and EMS clinicians in the field. And they look to support us and augment us as opposed to kind of take over for us. Um, you know, I, I really, it's really fun to be in a program like this where you're, you can operate side by side with them. And, uh, if you're interested, if you're a med student or you're an EM resident and you're thinking about, you know, this is something that's interesting, go to emsfellowship.com, take a look at, uh, what they do and what they have to offer. Um, and take a look at md1program.org. Uh, this is a nonprofit organization that's designed to bring physicians into the field at the point of injury or illness to uh, affect better outcomes by providing advanced care at the point of injury or illness. Um, I think it's a game breaker. I think it's a really cool thing, and I think it's going to change the paradigm. Um, so, uh, hopefully we'll have Dr. Merlin or some of the fellows on in the next, uh, few, you know, in the near future to talk about the fellowship program and what actually it does, um, and how it works. Uh, we have a discussion about how it works with, uh, EMS on scene, um, and the abilities they bring to the table, but, um, definitely a really cool program. Uh, Dr. Merlin, uh, he tweets at, uh, C-Care Anywhere, um, on Twitter and, um, uh, 
you know, if you go check these websites out, you'll get a ton of stuff, um, really interesting stuff. If you Google them, you're going to find all these papers that have been written and they're all, they all have emergency pre-hospital, uh, focus to them. So it's a really, really good organization, really good program. So that's about it right now. Uh, that was the the conference. Like I said, there was a ton of stuff and there was things, honestly, I left out and, you know, I'm coming up on a hard out. So, I mean, there's really tons of stuff. Uh, I can't recommend this enough. It's every week, every year during EMS week, they've run this. Um, if you get the opportunity to go do so, if you get to hear, if you get a chance to hear any of these people speak, um, definitely go out and uh, do that. We're going to try to link to as many of them as we possibly can. But, um, you know, this is a great opportunity for EMS clinicians, you know, EMTs, paramedics, I don't care what you are, go out and listen to some of these people and listen to what they can do, and what they want to bring to us. It's a great thing. It's going to advance our profession. It's going to make us more uh, professional. It's going to really raise us up. So I, I can't say high, speak highly enough about it. Uh, so that's pretty much it for me today. Um, you know, I kind of rambled. I apologize. Um, special thank you to our production assistant, Caroline, um, who sat next to me during this and took copious notes and um, helped me out with this a lot. So thanks, Caroline. Um, everybody will be back in the next episode. We'll be talking. Um, but, um, you know, we're on all the, again, check us out on all of the, the podcast uh, sites, you know, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, uh, Google play. Um, you can ask Alexa to play the overrun and she'll do it, which is kind of cool. Uh, check out our website, uh, at overrunproductions.com. Uh, we've got a link to, um, all the shows, uh, all the archives, and we also have a link to our uh, merch store. So if you want an overrun shirt or a onesie, uh, for your kid, you know, so they can do better. Uh, that's cool. Um, and you know, reach out to us, talk to us about, you know, we'd love to hear what you think. Um, you know, do you work in a place that has EMS physicians on a response, uh, ability? Uh, do you not, is this something that you're interested in? We'd love to hear your comments. Um, you know, hit us up at, um, Twitter over on EMS, uh, Facebook, we're on at Overrun. um, Instagram, uh, we're over on productions. So, um, you know, for that, uh, you know, just talk to us and uh, we'd be love, we'd love to hear what you have to say. So for the overrun, I'm Dan Schwester and, uh, that's it. Get home safe, be careful and, uh, do better guys. Thanks. <laughs>